Welcome to Theology for the People. Today is St. Patrick's Day, and with St. Patrick's Day comes a lot of stories about St. Patrick doing things like taking on the Druids, driving the snakes out of Ireland, using the shamrock as a tool for teaching the Trinity. Did those things actually happen? Or are they merely the things of legend? And what is the actually true story of Patrick? I'll tell you a few things that you might find interesting. Did you know Patrick was not Irish to begin with? Did you know that there's a connection between Patrick and caring about human trafficking? Uh, Did you know that Patrick became what's called a gray wolf and essentially did a very Christ-like action in order to bring the gospel to the Irish people? The true story of St. Patrick is so much better than any of the myths or legends that get wrapped up with this day. So with that, we're going to be having an episode today in which we talk to a guy named Shane Anglin. Now, Shane is a theologian. He has a Master of Divinity from Dallas Theological Seminary, and he is Irish. He lives in Ennis, Ireland, and he is a teaching elder and worship leader and youth leader, wearing a lot of hats at his church. I have had Shane on the program before and just very much enjoy talking with him. He is very smart and very well-read on this topic. One more thing about Patrick that he's going to tell you and that I want you to know is that you can actually read Patrick's writings for yourself. They exist today. So with no further ado, here is my discussion with Shane England, and I hope that you'll be blessed by it and encouraged on this St. Patrick's Day. Hey, welcome to Theology for the People. This is Pastor Nick Cady from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado, and today I am joined by Shane England from Ireland, Ennis, Ireland. Hey, Shane, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Nick. Shane, you're a recurring guest. We've had you on before, and and just I really enjoyed our conversation. So I was glad when you took me up on the offer to be on again. My privilege. Thank you so much, Nick. So Shane, as an Irishman, I I wanted to mm. talk to you about Saint Patrick. And brilliant. It's my understanding that you know quite a bit about him. A lot of our listeners they've they've probably heard of Saint Patrick. You know, we have some of our own traditions here in the U.S., which probably have absolutely nothing to do with the true story of Patrick. And so I thought, what a good, what a good opportunity for you to come on and get to share uh, with us about who Patrick was and, and some of the things that we can take away from, from his person and his actions. Brilliant. Yeah, Patrick is definitely probably the most well-known non-Irishman from associated with Ireland. He... He was a British missionary that lived in the fifth century and not a lot of British missionaries in the fifth century have left their mark on history, but Patrick is unique in that he's celebrated all over the world for various reasons. And obviously the modern portrayal of Patrick and its celebration is, I would say, largely a secular thing. It's St. Patrick's Day is just a a holiday, a time for people to have fun. But obviously the roots of of the St. Patrick's holiday, March 17th, would go back to the medieval church and their practice of celebrating feast days, which would be the day where a saint died. It would be a time to commemorate those people who the church regarded as essential. And so the Irish church, from at least the 7th century, would have been commemorating St. Patrick as one of the founders and certainly one of the most important members of the early Irish church. Now, a lot of what we think we know about Patrick is 
completely removed from the historical person. And that's not uncommon when the modern world repackages and sort of adapts legends and stories and traditions that have sort of accumulated over the years and the centuries. And so a lot of the things that we associate with Patrick, such as he drove snakes out of Ireland, obviously he didn't, he, he never mentioned anything like that. And that is a very late tradition or even that he used the shamrock to teach about the Trinity. He never would have used an analogy like the shamrock, uh, for two reasons. One, it's not a great analogy of the Trinity. Uh, theologically, and Patrick does have a lot to say about the Trinity, but his language is either couched in the councils of the church or in the scriptures. And the second reason he would never have used the shamrock is that the shamrock isn't even a native plant in Ireland. So he, it wouldn't yeah. be even grown in Ireland in the fifth century. So a lot of these things that we associate with Patrick are obviously just stories and legends. But the amazing thing about Patrick is that he is the only British writer from the fifth century that has left us works that he wrote himself, a very personal letter, his testimony, and uh, a letter then attacking the, the practice of human trafficking. Those are unique. Those are the only documents that have survived the dark ages to come out of Britain or Ireland in the fifth century. And for that reason, they are extremely valuable for our understanding of theology and history, but also for the story of Christianity in Ireland. Um, and I think they are easily two of my all-time favorite works from an early Christian because they don't read like anything else. They're the setting, the story, the language, they really are amazing documents. And it's really by God's providence that they survived the, 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 the centuries of history because so much of that time period was lost and never seen again. Yeah, that is fascinating. And I, I would assume that many of our listeners might not even know that Patrick had writings, right? So that we can actually know things, yep. about what he thought, what he believed. Are those writings, are they written in Latin? They absolutely would have been written in Latin. One is called the Confession, the Confessio, which is, I think, modeled on Augustine's Confession because Patrick, like Augustine, basically retells the story of his life and interprets that theologically to see what God has done in his life and how God has used him. And also it defends Patrick's mission in Ireland, which was heavily criticized. And the second document is a letter written to people that were involved in human trafficking. And it's one of the earliest Christian polemics against slavery, against uh, the practice of human trafficking that Patrick himself was a victim of in his early life and was very passionate to rebuke Christians that were involved in this slave trade. So he was very passionate about that. But yeah, much of what we call medieval hagiography, hagiography is the study of saints and their lives. So much of that is just unhistorical traditions, stories, motifs that have nothing to do with historical people. And Patrick, likewise, you know, 200 years after he died, there were stories written about him that are fanciful. He's this great miracle worker. He's this great champion. He takes on druids. He, he battles. He turns people into animals. All this kind of stuff is just folklore. Um, but the unique thing about Patrick is that we can actually read him in his own words. There are documents written by him that have survived. And so I think that is a really important that we can actually go back into that time frame and to see what he was thinking about and what was important to him. Yeah. And I want to get into that really. And, and I want to talk more about that. You mentioned the human trafficking thing. And I know that that wasn't yeah. just something that was 
uh, theory to Patrick. It's something that he personally experienced himself as well. Yeah. But, but and but before we get to that, let me just ask you a few questions because I mean, I've heard of course the legend of Patrick driving the snakes out of Ireland. Right. I was I was in Cork City a while back. I didn't see any snakes. Do you have snakes in Ireland? No, and even. Even centuries before Patrick lived, the Greek geographer Strabo would have said that um, Ireland is a, a strange island, a, a holy island. Even the pagans would have called it a holy island because it doesn't have any snakes. So Ireland was well known, even in antiquity, even in the classical age, that it didn't have snakes. The story of driving the snakes out is a religious motif of, you could say, driving out paganism, but it has no historical connection to the man. Okay, so how about this one? Just kind of going off what it, what we culturally think of when we think of Ireland and Patrick. So okay. there's the Celtic cross, right? Which is the cross overlaid over the Druid symbol of the circle. Now, how much is that actually true? How much does it relate to history? Did Patrick actually fight Druids? Yeah, well, Druidism was widespread in Ireland at that time because Ireland was not part of the Roman Empire. So it had never come to terms with Christianity as a political force in the fourth century. So, you know, by the, by the year 380, 381, Christianity is the, the legal religion of the Roman empire. There's state enforced baptisms, you know, it's a Christian empire, but Ireland, because it was never part of the Roman empire, it actually preserved a pre-Christian culture and a very ancient culture that was actually pre-Roman. Ireland was never a part of the Roman empire even um, before the advent of Christianity. So the religious life of Ireland at this time would have been the oldest cultural practices in Europe. They would have uh, been Indo-European. They're very ancient. And Druidism was a huge part of that. And so human sacrifice was a huge part of that. And Druids were seen as not just religious theologians, but also as adjudicators in the society, but they were very feared. Even the pagan Romans, you know, they, they really did fear of, of all things, the Druids, even, you know, when the Roman legions were fighting in Britain during the time of Caesar, these were battle hardened veteran legions. And the thing that made their blood run cold was the sight of Druids coming alongside the Celtic tribes in Britain to, to cry out these spells and war chants. And the Roman legions were terrified because they had such a terrible reputation for human sacrifice and also occultic powers and all that kind of stuff. But to the, to the question of the Celtic cross itself, you know, that is, we're unsure as to the exact origins of that. It may have nothing to do with pre-Christian culture. It may simply be the Coptic church's influence because we do have examples of what we call Celtic crosses in Coptic manuscripts and in Coptic um, Christian iconography. So it may even have been Eastern Christianity's influences on the early Irish church, but that is a, a question that art historians are, are still uh, debating. Oh, very interesting. Okay. So yeah. please do tell us a little bit of the history of Christianity in Ireland, how it relates to Patrick. And sure. it's, it's my understanding that Patrick also wasn't the first uh, to bring yes. Christianity to Ireland. Yeah, that's right. So because Ireland was outside of the Roman empire, th there was a question, should people go to a country like Ireland to share the gospel. And the general consensus was, no, that would be a very bad idea because a Irish people are barbarian. So they're completely savage. They would probably kill you. And B there was this idea really that barbarians 
didn't have the mental capacity to embrace the teachings of Christianity, they were almost seen as more animal than human. And so you were kind of throwing your pearls before swine. And so you would have Christian theologians, Prudentius, the Spanish theologian around this time, he said that a, a barbarian is closer to a four-legged animal than, than a, a civilized Roman. So the question to send missionaries was not a very pressing one, but there were Christians in Ireland. And that is invariably because of the slave trade. Christians being kidnapped from France or Britain at this time and taken back to Ireland to live as slaves. And so that's, that's probably the beginning of Christianity in Ireland was people taking slaves from Britain or Gaul, which we call France today. And the church historian Sozomen, who was writing in the fifth century, he, he describes that himself as a Greek historian. He was aware that Christianity was already reaching out beyond the frontiers of the Roman empire, but he said that is invariably accidentally. It's usually because of barbarian incursions that Christians end up outside of the, the borders of Rome. That being said, there were a minority of theologians, interestingly, in Gaul, associated with a, a theologian called Prosper of Aquitaine. And Prosper was a, a big fan of Augustine of Hippo in North Africa, and they used to correspond together. And Prosper, he wrote a book. Uh, it's the first Christian book on missions to the unreached and it's called the call of all nations and because of his doctrine of grace where he he believed in the sovereignty of god and the sovereignty of grace he didn't believe this idea that there were people that were unworthy or you know that it was not important to reach them with the gospel uh, he famously said in that book he said that the grace of god is not content with the frontiers of rome and he said the grace of God would conquer where the Roman legions would never have conquered. And so he was an ardent supporter of sending missionaries beyond the frontier, even to Ireland. And he is connected with the first missionary that we know of by name that came to Ireland. And that was a man called Palladius, who was sent from Gaul in the year 431. Um, he was known to Palladius, and Palladius writes about this in his chronicles. So it's a very, it's a very reliable point of history that the first Christian missionary was a man called Palladius. He came to Ireland probably to minister to Christians living there, so probably slaves taken from Gaul or Britain. But Prosper also says that he endeavored to make the pagan island Christian. So he did partake in evangelism and in sharing the gospel to the, to the Celtic Irish. But that's all we know of him. We don't have any writings from Palladius himself. And the little that we do know of him is that you know he ministered somewhere in the south of ireland we don't know for how long but that was the the first record we have of, of a missionary being sent to ireland the next big name that we know of is patrick his story of coming to ireland is is radically different in many ways to palladius who was a professional theologian who was sent by a very supportive church in gaul with a clear mission patrick's story is is vastly different to that yeah no and i i, I think that's really interesting to hear about prosper of Anquitine and that that idea of that book call to all nations that isn't something i've been familiar with and i would just refer any of our listeners to a wonderful article you wrote called St. Patrick, Grey Wolves, and the Kimbid King. And, and you know, you explain what those, those terms mean in a fascinating mm. way. So that article came out in March of 2021. You wrote it for calvarychapel.com. 
And I just refer anybody over there, you know, go listen, go read that article. It's written in great detail, even with what I found helpful. You even give pronunciations of Irish words and, and yeah, like those that. are very helpful. Some archaic terminology. Yeah. Yeah. But going back to Patrick, his, his story is, is remarkable because first of all, he wasn't a committed Christian. He was a very cynical teenager growing up in a Christian household in Britain a very privileged young man, probably from a wealthier family. And he tells us in his confession that when he grew up as a teenager, he used to, to laugh at the teachings of Christianity. Uh, even though his family was connected to the church, he had no regard for the teaching of Christianity and lived a pretty self-indulgent life until the age of 16, when he was kidnapped by slave traders from Ireland. So they, the Irish slave trade was really having a boom time when Patrick was living because the Roman legions had pulled out of Britain and there was much anarchy and confusion and the Celtic tribes from Ireland were making um, huge profit from going to Britain and kidnapping young men particularly. And Patrick was taken as a slave at the age of 16 and spent six years then as a slave in Ireland. And that would have been a pretty, pretty terrible time for him. Obviously being a slave in Ireland at that time, you have no rights, you have no identity and he had a very difficult time but six years later he basically received a vision from god that he says god told him to travel south and that god would take him home and patrick already at this time had had a conversion experience where he had turned to god in faith and accepted Christ as his savior. He had remembered those teachings that he had received from his parents as a young man about the Christian faith. And now in those years of desperation, he turned to God and incredibly, he managed to get off the island of Ireland and managed to convince a boat to take him out. That in itself was miraculous. Um, we know of thousands of slaves that were taken to Ireland, but we, we don't know of any that ever made it home again. He eventually did get back to Britain and his parents, he told, he says in his writings that they more or less reacted like he had come back from the dead because they had long mourned for their son whom they assumed was either killed or that they would never see again was they begged him also to stay at home it is interesting that patrick though even though he was back in britain the huge temptation would have been to get back into life as he had known it that life of privilege the life of being in a in a well-to-do british uh, family but he said, you know, his time in Ireland had changed him into a man of faith. And one night as he was back in Britain, he said that he had a dream where he had a very terrifying vision of a man coming from Ireland. And so we can only assume that the man coming from Ireland is, is a Celt, probably heavily tattooed, wearing different clothes, you know, with a big beard, something that a, a Roman British man would have viewed as almost demonic, something terrified. And this man that came from Ireland approached Patrick and held out his hand, but it, it wasn't a weapon or a chain. It was actually a letter. And Patrick opened the letter and he said that he heard the, the Vox Hiboricum, the, the voice of the Irish. And it was the voice of the, the people of Ireland pleading with him to come back to Ireland and to share the Christian faith with him. And from that time, Patrick made a decision that he would return to Ireland. And so he entered into what we would describe as seminary and he pursued ordination in the British church. But there were several things that really almost prevented him from returning. And the first was 
that the church in Britain was very opposed to sending one of their bishops back into Ireland. They, they actually actively discouraged Patrick from ever going back there. And they said it would be a waste of time. It would be too dangerous. Bear in mind that the, the British church would have viewed the Irish people as an enemy, as an existential threat to their identity. There was constant warfare between the, the, the British Christians and the pagan Irish at this time. But Patrick was adamant and pursued his, his studies. Prior to ordination as a bishop, though, he confided in one of his closest friends. And we can, we're basically recounting what he says in his own writings here. He confided in one of his closest friends a sin that he had committed when he was a teenager. So it was prior to his coming to faith. But it was grievous enough that it weighed on him. And he told his friend this dark secret and his friend assured him of the forgiveness of God. But prior to his ordination, his superiors found out about this secret sin because it was told to them. And he was prevented from coming to Ireland as a bishop because they, they felt that he was unworthy of the role. Now, he never tells us what that sin was. And obviously, people can speculate. But the, the significance is that Patrick obviously felt deeply betrayed by his close friends. But nonetheless, he, he pursued and he wouldn't give up. And he says that, and after many years, he finally received ordination and permission to return to Ireland. And so he came in the latter part of the fifth century as a missionary bishop with the goal to go to places in Ireland that had never heard the gospel. So he wasn't um, just ministering to British slaves or Christians living in Ireland. His purpose, he tells us, was to go to places that no missionary had ever gone before. So we think that was probably the west coast of Ireland. A deeply dangerous and non-hospitable place to go to at that time. But Patrick went nonetheless and faced many dangers. And he would have been viewed in the Irish culture at that time. They would have regarded him in the Irish language. They would have called him a, a kugloss, which means a gray wolf, because he was an outsider. And because he was an outsider, he had no protection. He had no honor price, which was that anyone could commit a crime against him with impunity. There was no legal protections for Patrick. And Patrick tells us in his own writings that he did face persecution. He did end up in chains, which in that time would have been a very, a very serious thing because people held in chains were normally executed, were normally killed. Those people were known as kimbids. A kimbid was a man who had committed a crime or was deemed worthy of death. And so he would be kept in chains until he until his execution. But Patrick says that he faced all those dangers, but nevertheless, God brought him through. But he did readily expect to be martyrs. In his own writings, he does expect to be killed at any time. But he faithfully ministered for many years. Thousands of people came to the faith. He baptized, he discipled. Um, and he really, he became dearly beloved to the Irish church. And strangely enough, he, at the end of his writing, he even identifies himself as an Irishman. Mm. which is, is very interesting for a Roman Briton to say, because that would be unheard of to use that kind of language. And he, he, he says that in his second smaller work, it's known as the Epistle to the Soldiers of Caroticus. Caroticus was a, a British warlord who was a nominal Christian, but was involved in human trafficking. And had actually kidnapped some women from a church that Patrick had planted to sell them into slavery. And Patrick wrote him a, one British man to another and excommunicated him from the church. And he said, you know, what you've done is, is murder 
and it's you know it's an abomination and it's a really passionate letter because patrick obviously knows firsthand what it means to be a slave at this time having spent six years as a slave but he says an interesting thing in that letter he says is it a scandal for you as a british christian that we are born in Ireland, even though he wasn't born in Ireland, he so identifies with his church, with the congregation that he was serving with, that he rebukes this, this racist view that, you know, the life of an Irish Christian is not worth the same as a British Christian, but Patrick mm. is, comes out very strong against that. And obviously he comes out strong against a lot of the, the cultural abuses within Ireland at this time as well. You know, pagan pre-Christian Ireland was not a egalitarian you know, place. It was violent. It was heavily stratified socially. Women experienced usually a lot of abuse. And Patrick points out in his letter that of all the converts that received the most persecution, it was invariably women, uh, particularly women from either households or what we would say lower income, you know, people of, of uh, low means. Patrick says that they were treated savagely, not only by the community, but invariably by their parents. And you can really sense Patrick's heart is for these women that suffered and faced alienation because those are themes that really come out a lot in Patrick's own experience of conversion, that he, as a Christian, understood what it meant to be alienated because he chose that. He, he chose to return to Ireland to spend the rest of his life, in a, in a sense, to be alienated from the the, the Roman culture that he knew in order to bring Christ. And so I think for those reasons, his writings are incredibly powerful. They're very emotional. They're very raw. They're not very polished. You know, if you compare his confession to Augustine's, Augustine of Hippo, his confession is a masterpiece. It's, it's theologically, it's theologically vast. I mean, it's, it's a work of not only uh, great insight, but beauty. Patrick's writing is very clumsy. It doesn't really read very easily. And he says that, you know, he's not, Patrick himself confesses, you know, having spent six years as a slave, he missed out on a lot of education, but he's, he's doing the best that he can. And he's, his Latin prose is very clumsy, very wooden, but it's raw. There's a lot of emotion, a lot of love. And scholars have recognized that really Patrick's confession really could be described as Patrick's confession of grace because the common theme that links all of Patrick's theology is the idea of grace, that God renders to the sinner not what they deserve, uh, but what they need because of the love of God. And so Patrick experienced that firsthand, but it also formulates how he would have shared the gospel to the people that he had met in Ireland that would have had no idea about grace or any of those concepts. They just did not exist in, in Celtic religion. There's no concept even close to the idea of grace in Celtic religion. Yeah, I had read that in your article. You had mentioned that in Irish, there was no word for grace because they hadn't yeah. encountered it. That's so true. There isn't a word in old Irish for grace. The word that Christians used, Irish Christians had to come up with a word. So they used the, the old Irish word wrath. It's or a with an accent, T-H, wrath. Wrath in old Irish just means the king's enclosure. It's where the king would keep the cattle was the currency of pagan Ireland. There was no coinage. And so what Irish Christians, when they tried to come up with a word, they used this word to speak of the treasure of the king. Wow. And that's what God gives to sinners, Patrick says. It's, mm. it's not that we earn that, but it's actually from the king's own treasure that he gives uh, to people that have become even the enemies of God because of sin, but are reconciled through faith in Christ. So Irish Christians were very creative in trying to 
unpack that, you know, and they, and they actually came up with that expression in Irish, on wrath day, the grace of God. But the, the roots of that are obviously the pagan concept of the king's treasures or the king's possessions. Beautiful. So I know that after, so let's see, Patrick comes in, he starts spreading Christianity. There's two things I want to know about. And then the last yeah. thing I'm going to ask you is what are some of the, the takeaways for this for us as as individuals and as, as mm. communally as the church. So the first sure. thing I want to ask about is, you know, I had read about before people using Patrick as an example mm. of what they called power encounters of evangelism. Okay. And this oh, would be, okay. yeah, having, you know, kind of a showdown, if you will, with the, with the Druid mm. lords or whatever they were. Very interesting. Um, I would say that that is the opposite of what happened. The idea of the power evangelism comes not from Patrick's writings, but from two writings that come from the seventh century. So obviously Patrick lived in the fifth century, but in the seventh century, we see the emergence of patrician hagiography. So legends and tales about the man Patrick that are not historical, but very entertaining. And one of those books was, you know, the life of Patrick by a guy called Morachu. And the other was The Life of Patrick by Tir Khan, two Irish um, writers. And in Morahu's Life of Patrick, we see Patrick, the, the powerful bishop who comes to Ireland and specifically goes to the hill of Tara to light the, the pagan fire on the eve of Easter, to do this as a confrontation to Celtic paganism, to say that, you know, your time is over. This is the Christian time, and I'm here to say that this is going to be a Christian country, and this fire is now symbolically turned into a Christian symbol. We're, we're devoiding it of its paganism. Um, and the Druids that come against Patrick, you know, he, he casts them down, he kills them, or he turns his enemies into foxes. You know, it, it's, it is what it is. It's a 7th century folktale. Now, compare that to the missionary or evangelism strategy of Patrick, the man. He, he, and he constantly ministers from a position of weakness. Mm. He ministers as an outsider. He ministers as a gray wolf. He has no credibility in this country. The, the question is, why would Ireland adopt Christianity? Roman Britain, which was nominally Christian, had fallen apart. Christianity in Ireland didn't know anything about the Christian empire. There was nothing to be gained by Ireland becoming Christian. They weren't part of a Christian empire. There was no political force that could compel them. There was no centralized government in pre-Christian Ireland. There was just 150 different warlords and different kingdoms, each doing what they wanted. So there was no idea that this conversion of Ireland could be an act of parliament or an act of state or even an act of diplomacy. And we do see that model used elsewhere in church history. I think of the, the Kiev Rus experience where, you know, the, the origins of the Christian state in the precursor to Russia is, I think, a political act rather than you could say an act of conversion per se. But Ireland doesn't have any of that. There's no centralized government. There's no compelling reason. They couldn't be forced to become Christian. They were a country by themselves. So the question is, what would compel them? And it's simply the message of the gospel. The only thing Patrick had was the gospel. He didn't have an army. He didn't have a cultural force behind him. He was viewed as nothing. In this culture, he was a great wolf. He, he was a man without honor. He was a man without family. 
He was a guy that spoke, you know, really rusty Irish with a British accent and was preaching Christ, this crucified uh, Jewish man. I mean, there was nothing that compelled that story apart from the grace of God. And I think that is an incredible witness to the compelling power of the gospel is that Ireland did turn to Christianity. And within two generations, we see not only Christianity thriving in Ireland, but we see Irish theology. We see Irish people producing commentaries on scripture. And we see Irish people sending missionaries back into Europe to, to reconvert Europe after the barbarian invasions. And the only thing that explains that is the power of the gospel. It's not that this was a man who rested on his power and confrontation. It's, it's actually of a man who witnessed while in chains, expecting death anytime. And not only that, but constantly was criticized by the British church. Um, he says this in his confessions that um, my mission was constantly criticized because people back home felt like you're wasting your time um, spending time with these unchristian barbarians. So I think, yeah, you, you can't really contrast to a greater degree, I think, this idea of power encounter with Patrick, the man in chains, going back to the people that enslaved him to preach the gospel of Christ. Fascinating. You know, I had served as a missionary in Hungary for a long time, and the way that Hungary was Christianized as well was similar to the Kievan Rus, you know, where it had been a very political thing. It had been done by force. And I think that that would probably, it'd be interesting to kind of make a map or, and I'm sure it's been done, but make a map of how the different nations of Europe were Christianized, you know, which yeah. ones were done by force and which one were, were done by religion of the heart, if you will. And my yes. guess is that m most of them were not done through persuasion by the gospel, like in Ireland. And yeah, I, I read some interesting things about the French revolution. And how one of the first things that the French sought to do was mm -hmm. to cast off religion because they viewed it yes. as something that had been imposed upon them rather than something that they right. had chosen. And I wonder how much that affects Christianity in Ireland, right? Because it's not seen, even to this day in Hungary, there's a resurgent yeah. movement, as well as I know in the, in the Slavic countries, there's a, yes. a movement towards, we need to cast off this imposition of Christianity and get back to our right. roots. Yes. Yeah, I wonder, you know, how different that is than in Ireland because it is something that's yeah. personal. It is It is a very different way. And it is interesting because when we come to the question of reformation in Ireland, reformation in Britain was an act of parliament. Yes, there were incredibly powerful theologians at work in Britain during the 16th century, but let's not forget that it was definitively an act of parliament. Um, it was from the top down, and that is different to the, to the German and Central European experience. But Ireland, when we get back to the, the very beginnings of Christianity, yeah, it is an outlier. It's, it's a country that was very conservative. I mean, it, it, it valued its own tradition, its own religious life, its own way of doing things, its own independence. And for, for them to be convinced through the preaching of this man, Patrick, who was nothing in the values of that society, I think it speaks volumes of the true power encounter in evangelism, which can never be replicated, even though people try, it can never be replicated by an act of parliament or by compelling, but by the faithful proclamation of, of God's word. And Patrick's writings, because he wasn't so eloquent, some critics of Patrick, they, they describe him as a man of one book because 
pretty much every sentence he, he pens in Latin is an allusion or a quotation of the Bible because that's all he knows. And that is incredible is that that is pretty much the only weapon that he had in his arsenal was the word of God and a profound love for the Irish people, which I think, again, is a fairly unique thing in fifth century British circles. We do have writings that come a few generations after Patrick by a, a British theologian called Gildas. So he's actually writing in the sixth century, but some of the same problems are still continuing with um, the slave trade and stuff. But Gildas's description of Irish people is that they are like maggots coming out of the ground. They're, they're like demonic enemies of civilization and, and Roman values. And, I, and, you can, and you can understand why, because to a British person in the fifth century, uh, Irish people were like ISIS. They were something terrifying. They, they would take people, sell them into slavery. They would burn down your village. They would kill people. So, I mean, there was nothing redeeming about the culture or the people. But for Patrick to want to go back there, I think is incredible. And, you know, it's, it's one thing to sort of, to rush into something you don't. But Patrick was returning to a country that he had spent six, six years as a slave. He was returning to a culture that he knew exactly how it operated. And I think that is incredibly courageous. And he says the only reason he came back, the, the one and only reason that he returned to the country that had enslaved him was the message of the gospel. Mm. And that is, I think, a great testimony to this British uh, man that changed the destiny of this country, but also I think is one of the timeless examples to Christians of what the heart of evangelism looks like, but also really the power of God's word in changing lives and in changing nations. There was no great strategy. It was simply to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So here's the other thing I want to ask you is that I understand that so with Patrick and, and Palladius before him, Ireland was kind of a destination country, if you will, where missionaries were being sent. Although, as you mentioned, there wasn't a lot of uh, excitement around doing so. But then after that, I, as mm. Ireland became, or Christianity became rooted in Ireland, it's my understanding that they also began to send missionaries That's right. across to Scotland. And so what was the relationship between Patrick and Columba? Yeah, so when we get to the sixth century, so, you know, one or two generations after Patrick, Christians in Ireland are all right moving into Northern Britain, Scotland. The Latin for an Irishman is a Scot. So the Scottish people at this time are Irish. There's no distinction at all. They're, they're speaking the same language. They're from the same tribes. Columba was, a, was a, a very powerful monastic leader that was went to Scotland either by exile or by choice. But the monastery that he established there, Iona, would send down missionaries to be amongst the first to preach the gospel to the English. And just so your listeners can understand the difference between a British man and an English man, the, the British are, you know, the, the inhabitants of the island of Britain that were colonized by the Romans, but the English are those Germanic tribes that later came into Britain in the fifth and sixth centuries and colonized it and obviously brought with them the English language. But it, amongst the first missionaries, to preach to the English and the very beginnings of the English church were missionaries from Ireland. The, the sort of the, the grandfather of English history, the venerable Bede, who was writing in the eighth century, when he's looking back at the beginnings of the English church, in his famous book, the history of the English people, he, he has some harsh words for the British church, not the English church, but the British church, because the British church refused to evangelize the English or even to 
join in any evangelistic efforts. So there were missionaries sent from mainland Europe, such as Augustine of Canterbury, etc. But the British church were very reluctant to see any kind of evangelism to the English because once again, the English were their bitter enemies. Um, but Bede commends the Irish for their willingness to preach the gospel to the English and to set up churches. And there were some very famous monastic settlements in Northumbria that were established by Irish missionaries. And then not long after that, we see the beginnings of a European movement where Irish Christians move into mainland Europe. One of the most famous is a Christian called Columbanus, which means little dove. And he and 12 of his associates went into modern day France, Switzerland, possibly even parts of the Czech Republic and ended up in Northern Italy, establishing many famous monasteries that are still there today. His last one in Bobbio, which is just outside of Milan. That was an incredibly influential monastery in Europe. It's where the Moratorian fragment came from. That's important for our study of the canon. And also a lot of important Latin biblical manuscripts come from there as well. But this movement to bring Christians from Ireland into Europe was a desire to basically proclaim the gospel and to live out the Christian ideal as exiles, because they were modeling what they saw from the first missionaries, people like Patrick. Patrick was an exile. He didn't have a homeland. He spent the rest of his life in a foreign country for the sake of Christ. Irish missionaries, two, three generations later, they sought to replicate that because that for them was the ideal, was to live as a foreigner in a foreign land for the sake of Christ and to spread the gospel and to disciple and to teach. And Irish missionaries made it as far as Kiev in the 12th century. So, I mean, they, they wandered all over Europe into Germany, you know, even further afield than that and setting up monasteries. That was typically the way that it was done. Monasteries would, would have been seen as centers of learning and industry, places of communal worship, but also of theological excellence mm. and manuscript production as well was a key, a key component of the Irish monastic movement. Yeah. Wow. So just in wrapping this all up, could you give our listeners maybe what you would say are one or two key takeaways that they should, they should walk away with from this discussion about Patrick? Okay. So the first thing I would say is you need to read St. Patrick because everyone knows about him. You know, everyone knows about the shamrock shake, about the snakes, you know, he loved wearing green, all these fanciful stories, but his, his writings are readily available. His confession and his letter, read them because it gives you a perspective of what was important to a Christian in the fifth century, a Christian that was convinced that God changed his life. And it's in many ways, it's a, a story that will resonate with everyone because it's a story of a teenager who's skeptical, who's bored with church, who's bored with religion, doesn't think the Bible has anything to offer him but experiences a crisis in his life that God brought about in order to make him into a man of faith. When Patrick understands that God had his hand on his life, Patrick was sure that with God's help, there was nothing that could not be accomplished. It's an incredibly challenging read. And the second thing I would say is, you know, even for Christians today, for ministers or for people in the church, is to be encouraged that God's word is incredibly powerful. The only thing, like I said, that Patrick had in his arsenal was the word of God. And it's the one thing that keeps coming up over and over again. His evangelistic strategy is to, is to preach the gospel because he's convinced that there's power in the word of God. And I think that is a tremendous lesson for us. Also that 
he has a heart for the lost. And I think that is the, that should be the true motivating driving force for all evangelism is that we love the lost and that we have a desire to reach them with the truth. Patrick recognized that God is the only source of that love because there was nothing compelling Patrick's love for a, a nation of Celtic barbarians that were, you know, the, the source of much suffering for him and his family. But it's God's love that compelled Patrick to do those things. So if evangelism seems like a, a stressful or a mysterious place for you as a Christian, I would say be encouraged that there's no great mystery to it. It is simply the proclamation of the gospel. Bring the scriptures to people, explain them. And also don't worry about being brave enough. Pray that God will put love in your heart. That is the, that is the, the compelling force. The strategy is simply to proclaim the word of God. The power is the Holy Spirit shed abroad in our hearts, which is the love of God. I think Patrick exhibits such a simple but powerful testimony to the effectiveness of a life lived for God. And let's not forget that he was used in an incredibly powerful way. This was a man who never in his wildest dreams would have seen that he would have this as the destiny that God had chosen for him when he was 16 years old. But that is the way God works. God uses the most unlikely of candidates to do the most extraordinary things. Patrick being a great example of that. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Shane. It's very, yeah. it's been like instructive and encouraging and just all around wonderful. So I, I want to refer our listeners to your article one more time. It's called St. Patrick Grey Wolves and the Kimbid King. And it can be found at calvarychapel.com. But Shane, are there any other places online where people can read some of your writings and things like that? Not, not particularly my writings, but um, confessio.ie would be a great resource just for the works of Patrick. That is a scholarly website that has all of the primary and secondary sources available. If you are interested in, in reading some of these works, confessio.ie would be a good website for you. Great. Yeah. And I'll put that in the show notes as well. So thank you so much, Shane. And I hope that thank you'll you. be a guest again in the future. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for listening to this episode of Theology for the People. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast if you hadn't. If you'd like to support what we're doing here at Theology for the People, the, one of the best ways you can do that is by giving us a written review and a rating on your podcast app. Specifically, a written review does a ton to boost us in the algorithm and shows that this content is being used, that it's popular, and that helps other people discover it when they're searching for these things online or in the uh, podcast app. So I'd love it if you do that. Make sure to check out the written version of the website, nickkady.org, which is the Theology for the People blog. Next week, we'll be back. I have Pastor Michael Payne and I discussing the ascension and why the ascension matters way more for the gospel than many people tend to think. We'll see you then. God bless you.